Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking Julian Assange, constitutional rights, and press freedom, and so much more. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I especially want to welcome you. Uh, This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Uh, Just real quick to get this out of the way here, because I am a filthy, no-good capitalist, Uh, If you like what I do here and you want to help support the show, uh, there are a number of different avenues uh, you can explore for doing that. Uh, The best way is my brand new Patreon page I've just put up, and I've just added a new feature, in fact, uh, that I'm calling Law School Show Notes. That's really going to be chock full of a lot of really good information relating to stuff we talk about on the show uh, that is really tailored to people who uh, are either in law school, uh, you know, or maybe you're thinking about going into it, really anything from someone who's considering pre-law, or if you're a 1L, uh, or maybe you got your JD but you haven't taken the bar. I, I mean, there, really, there's going to be a lot of good stuff in there for people across that entire spectrum. Uh, and then there's just lots and lots of other goodies for uh, for all different groups of people. So uh, I would recommend going and checking that out if you can. And if you are able to sign up uh, and help support the show, uh, you enable me to help grow the channel and to ultimately be able to have a richer discussion with you all about law and philosophy. Now, if you can help, I would, of course, be very grateful. If you are not in a place to do that right now, that's all right. I still do really very much appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here with me today all the same. And that goes for whether you are a first-time listener or a long-time subscriber. All right. Well, uh, we're going to be touching on uh, a a number of topics here that I have touched on uh, in a lot of different episodes throughout the past three of the show that are kind of coming together in a new uh, and interesting way, I think. And what sparked all of this was a very recent announcement uh, for those of you who maybe don't know or who just maybe don't care because you don't follow Assange that much. Um, the United States' main witness against Julian Assange recently admitted that he completely fabricated allegations that he had made to the FBI. Now, because of this, I thought this might also be uh, a good time to look at a few other misconceptions uh, related to Julian Assange and his persecution. And you will notice somewhat of a consistent theme throughout the show today is going to be the freedom of expression in its original and traditional meaning. We are going to be looking at a few aspects of the First Amendment that have an overwhelming effect uh, for, uh, in an immediate sense, Julian Assange, and I would say consequently do or will, Uh, affect every single one of us, because I have always been very much of the opinion that Julian Assange has really always been something of a canary in the proverbial coal mine 
there to alert us to a dangerous excess of government power. And where an excess of power prevails, you can be sure that no individual, community, or society can expect their sacred rights and liberties to be duly respected, and that no man will be safe in his opinion, his person, his faculties, or his possessions. So, reflecting on the particulars of Assange's case and what it can teach us about uh, just how far we have strayed from, first of all, a true understanding of the First Amendment, in a lot of ways, many of us have become strangers to both the letter and the spirit of the law. Uh, and this, uh, when I think about this, I can't help but wonder if we are uh, standing right on the precipice of a moment in time uh, as was described by the Baron de Montesquieu in 1748 in the spirit of the law, when he said, A nation may lose its liberties in a day and not miss them in a century. So like I said, we're going to be talking about the First Amendment, and we're going to be focusing on a particular clause. It's Clause 2, and that is the one that reads, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of its speech or of the press. Now, we will be covering two misconceptions about this clause. First is the idea that Julian Assange has no constitutionally protected rights, that he, as a non-citizen, can be subject to the punishment of our laws without also being afforded their full protection. Now, once the government is allowed to dictate the terms of how our rights are to be preserved and to whom their full and absolute benefit extend, we no longer have a Bill of Rights. We really have something more like a Bill of Temporary and Ephemeral Government-Granted Privileges. And to uh, quote the late Justice Scalia, who was very fond of saying that every tin pot dictator and banana republic has a Bill of Rights, but that is not what protects the individual liberty of the people. That comes from the limited government to be found in the seven articles of the Constitution itself. And once we start acting under the presumption that our laws and their protections are in some way uh, either conditional or uh, revocable, we have really surrendered that very limited form of government that makes something like a Bill of Rights worth a damn to begin with. And there is a very dangerous thing that comes that they believe in self-limiting individual liberty, respected solely by government fiat, uh, whose only protections come from an ignorant faith in the power of parchment barriers. And I think that this sort of concept may be every bit as destructive to individual liberty as if such a concept had never existed to begin with. And I believe if that sentiment of self-limiting limited government ever becomes a normative view in this country, uh, we will most certainly end up with all the tyranny and bad government that we deserve. Now, the second thing that we're going to be talking about is a much more common misconception, and this is the idea that freedom of the press refers to the press as a profession and not a technology or an activity. Now, this is uh, a belief common enough that when uh, WikiLeaks 
dropped the Hillary Clinton emails, uh, we heard Fredo Cuomo go on TV and say, I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. No, 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 no. Not that Fredo. The other Fredo. Also interesting is remember, it's illegal to possess uh, these stolen documents. It's different for the media. So everything you learn about this, you're learning from us. And in full disclosure, let's take a look at what is in there and what it means. Joining us now, CNN. I dare you to make less sense. I was on the floor. Now, I cannot, uh, and honestly, nor would I ever want to, try to get inside the steroid-riddled mind of Chris Cuomo, but I think that prudence and common sense would dictate that he would lump in Julian Assange with the rest of us plebs as people who were nothing more than common thieves for daring to possess public records. Really, the only difference between Chris Cuomo and Julian Assange is that Julian Assange believes himself to be a journalist because he is. Chris Cuomo believes himself to be a journalist because he doesn't know any better. Now, there's two uh, overall points that I'm going to try to be getting across to you here today. And for those of you who have been watching for a long time, you will know that these are actually sort of like the two sort of founding points upon which I try to make every episode of this show revolve in one way or another. It's not always as direct as this, but those two concepts are first, that first come rights, then comes government. And secondly, the Constitution is not the law that governs us. The Constitution is the law that governs those who govern us. Now, this first point here is, I think, perfectly exemplified in this quote by Thomas Paine when he said that a natural right is an animal right, and the power to act it is supposed either fully or in part to be mechanically contained within ourselves as individuals. And I believe the second part is exemplified uh, by the preamble to the Bill of Rights, And that reads, The conventions of a number of the states having at the time of their adopting the Constitution expressed a desire, in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers, that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added, and as extending the ground of public confidence in the government will best ensure the beneficent start of its institutions. Now, I also want to give, uh, like I said, an honorable mention uh, to a third misconception that I do think directly affects the fate and the freedom of Julian Assange. And this is the idea that to the extent Assange may qualify for press protections in the abstract, it doesn't matter because his actual publications of specific materials amount to sedition, and sedition is not 
a protected right of free expression. Now, the reason I'm not going to be covering this one uh, in detail and going on to explain why it is a hollow argument is because I talked about this one very recently, uh, actually. And so I would recommend you all go check out uh, an episode of mine that I just recently did. Uh, it is called Sedition and American Virtue. Uh, and it goes into all of this, and uh, I will be putting a link to that up in the top right-hand corner of the video right about mm, now. Alright, so let's move on to talking about the first of the two myths. Myth 1. The Belief in Constitutional Rights Now, as Alexei de Tocqueville famously once said, When I refuse to obey an unjust law, I do not contest the right of the majority to command, but I simply appeal from the sovereignty of the people to the sovereignty of mankind. Now, in this quote, we see Tocqueville appealing to a concept that is largely forgotten by Americans today, and that is natural law. Now, through this episode, I am going to be arguing that the founding era shared certain understandings of speech and press freedoms as concepts, and even when they were divided over how to apply uh, those concepts, uh, in particular, their approach to, say, expressive freedom, uh, it was always grounded in something of a multifaceted understanding of natural law that really no longer survives in today's American constitutional thought. Speech and press freedoms referred, in part, to the natural rights that were expansive in scope but weak in legal effect, allowing for restrictions of expression to promote the public good. Most fundamentally, however, history undercuts uh, the Supreme Court's much more recent insistence that the axioms of modern doctrine inherent in the speech clause itself uh, with judges merely discovering and not crafting the First Amendment's contours and boundaries. Now, I'm reminded of one of the most helpful suggestions that I ever got when I was working as a law clerk uh, when we, I was learning how to deal with understanding constitutional clauses, and the advice that I got was that to interpret the meaning of the text you need to find the right level of abstraction, and that is what I want to do here with you all now. So in the founding era rights discourse, rights were divided between natural rights, which were liberties that people could exercise without government intervention, and positive rights, which were legal privileges or immunities defined in terms of government action or inaction. And this would be things like the right of due process, habeas corpus, the right to confront your, your accuser, and so forth. Consequently, distinguishing a natural right from a positive right was very simple, and this was the point that Thomas Paine meant to exemplify in that quote I just read from him a moment ago. So natural rights, in other words, were those that did not depend on the existence of a government. And since speaking, writing, and publishing uh, do not depend on a government, they were thus 
readily identifiable as natural rights. Though they are easy to identify, natural rights at the founding scarcely resembled our modern notion of rights as something of a determinate legal constraint on government authority. Rather, Americans typically viewed natural rights as aspects of natural liberty that governments should help protect against private interference. And this is mostly done through uh, some of the older areas of law in the common law, such as tort law, property law, restitution, contract, and so forth. And the government themselves could restrain only to promote the public good and only so long as the people or their representatives consented. And assessing the public good was generally understood as the welfare of the entire society. And this was, back then, considered almost entirely a legislative task, leaving very little room for judicial involvement, unlike today. So, natural rights thus powerfully shaped the way the founders thought about the purpose and the structure of government, but they were not legal trumps in the way we often talk about rights today. In part, the common law indicated the scope of natural rights, both because of a presumed harmony between the common law and the natural law, and because common law rules were presumptively based on popular consent and consistent with the public good. So, at the same time, the founders sometimes used natural law uh, and the law of reason to help shape their understanding of positive law. To recognize a natural right, in other words, implied recognition of its customary legal protections and vice versa. So simply put, uh, however, the First Amendment did not enshrine a judgment that the cost of restricting expression must outweigh the benefits. At most, it really only recognized a few established rules, leaving broad latitude for the people and their representatives to determine which regulations of expression would promote the public good. Now, whether modern doctrine serves those original principles is then a judgment that we must make. And the original meaning of the speech and press clause do not provide that answer. Nonetheless, the founders also accepted that speech and press freedoms denied the government narrower slices of regulatory power, and everyone agreed, for instance, that the liberty of the press encompassed, at the very least, the common law rule against press licensing. Now, Americans also prized the right to a general verdict in sedition trials, enabling juries to decide on the questions of both law and fact, and the right to present truth as a defense based largely on natural rights principles. Not surprisingly, then, the Founders invoked the natural rights of expressive freedoms in all sorts of different ways. Repres references to the freedom of speaking, of writing, publishing, seem to have been the most common, probably because those particular phrasings appeared in the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 and the Vermont Constitution of 1777. And in the committee that revised Madison's proposed Bill of Rights, for instance, we find one draft that mentioned, quote, certain natural rights which we retained, including the right of speaking, writing, and publishing with decency and freedom, end quote. 
But in the course of discussing natural rights, contemporaries also mention the right to speak, the right to publication, the natural right of free utterance, the liberty of discussion, the liberty of the tongue, the exercise of communication, and so forth and so on. Now, 18th century commentators sometimes referred to the liberty of the press as a natural right too. Printing, after all, uh, was really a more extensive and improved kind of speech. And some founders distinguished between the freedom of publishing as a natural right uh, from the freedom of the press as a common law rule against press licensing. And in 18th century English, the term the press was a reference to the printing press. Now, this terminology is somewhat fluid, and the founding era discuss discussions of press freedom often alluded to a natural rights concept. Some writers even equated the liberty of the press with the liberty of publishing our thoughts in any manner, whether by speaking, writing, or printing, thus treating speech and press freedoms as synonymous. And we move on now to myth number two. That First Amendment press freedom protects a profession and not an activity in general. Now, following the WikiLeaks publication of the now infamous collateral murder video uh, and all the foreign cables from U.S. officials, then, uh, Daniel Benjamin, I should say, then, U.S. Coordinator for Counterterrorism, at the time, had the following to say. I don't believe in imprisoning journalists, but I believe, I, that is, we all agree, someone who is stealing government information wholesale ought to be punished for that. The damage was enormous. I am open to the possibility that selective release might have been justified, but not wholesale release. What sense does that make? So this would seem to suggest that when the people withhold the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, we can be found guilty of perjury. When we do disclose the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, now we're guilty of espionage. But it, it gets worse. Because he appears to be upholding the right of a free press at the same time making arguments in favor of both prior restraint as well as the right to be punished for what you say after the fact. He then goes on to make two of the arguments about a free press that I mean to dispel. He says, I believe Julian Assange is closer to a spy than a journalist, and WikiLeaks is closer to a hostile foreign intelligence service than a publisher because, in fact, his business engaged in stealing information, and his use of information is not informed by a story, a narrative, a public point that needs to be made. So, first he claims that WikiLeaks, excuse me, WikiLeaks doesn't have press rights because these were stolen documents, and he even says that WikiLeaks stole them, which we know isn't true, or Chelsea Manning wouldn't be in prison right now as we speak for stealing those documents. Actually, on second thought, I do want to take that last sentence back. This is clearly a man who has no compunction about locking up Assange for a theft he didn't commit, 
So while Manny did confess to the theft, uh, it seems like maybe her guilt in all of this is more incidental than anything else. But the uh, sort of the legal ground is much, much clearer with Assange. This is very easily dispelled when we consider the precedent set by the Supreme Court uh, in the 2001 case of Bartnicki v. Bopper. And in that, the court recognized that those who lawfully obtain information pertaining to a matter of public interest have a near absolute right to publish it, even if their source illegally obtained the information. Prosecuting WikiLeaks for its role in this fundamental democratic process is an absolute undermining of these vital protections. He goes on to claim that Assange can't be pressed because all he did was provide neutral, transparent facts, as though biased narrative and spin are the indispensable qualities of a good journalist. Or, uh, maybe to put this in somewhat more poetic terms, I am reminded of a very famous uh, Bob Dylan interview that he gave with Time magazine, uh, and in fact, uh, this interview was captured in uh, D.A. Pennybaker's 1967 documentary, Don't Look Back. I don't want to find out anything. I'm not going to read Time magazine. I'm not going to read Newsweek. I'm not going to read any of these magazines. I mean, because they just got too much to lose by printing the truth. You know that. What kind of truths are they reading? On anything, even on a worldwide basis. They just go off the stands in a day if they printed really the truth. What is really the truth? Really the truth is just a plain picture. So these statements about Assange made by the then U.S. Coordinator for Counterterrorism, Daniel Benjamin, would really be laughable if the results weren't destroying the lives of this good man, as well as his friends and family. Now, I, there is certainly something to be said for a realistic expectation of human nature over notions of journalism as some kind of sphere of platonic perfectionism, but uh, to view the deviations of the ideal form for the ideal itself really does offer a striking insight into the mind of the people crafting our domestic laws and our foreign policies. But I digress. Now, early formula, formal, formulations, excuse me, early formulations of the freedom of the press spoke about it as a right of every free man, every citizen, or every individual. Now, these formulations often set forth narrow substantive views on the freedom of the press. <clears throat> but, whatever the scope of the right, it did belong to everyone. Now, the great common law jurist William Blackstone, for instance, wrote in 1769 that every free man has an undoubted right to lay his sentiments, uh, lay what sentiments he pleases before the public. To forbid this is to destroy the freedom of the press. And uh, Jean-Louis Delhomme, uh, an author widely cited by the 1780 Amer 1780s American writers, likewise uh, wrote in a chapter of his book on the liberty of the press that every subject in England has not only a right to present petitions to the king or to the House of Parliament, but he has a right to lay his complaints and observations before the public by means of an open press. 
Now, the right to present petitions, uh, of course, was not limited to the press as an industry, but really did belong to every subject. And DeLome's explanation suggests that the right to speak to the public via an open press likewise extends to all subjects, whether or not uh, they are using the printing press for a living. Now, state Supreme Courts in 1788 and 1791 similarly described the liberty of the press as permitting every man to publish his opinions and as meaning that the citizen has a right to publish his sentiments upon all political as well as moral and literary subjects. Now, Justice Iredell described the liberty of the press in 1799 as meaning uh, that that every freeman has an undoubted right to lay what sentiments he pleases before the public. St. George Tucker, in his treatise, Tucker's Commentaries from 1803, defined freedom of the press as meaning every individual certainly has a right to speak or publish his sentiments on the measures of government. Several early state constitutions echo this as well, providing that every citizen may freely speak, write, and print on any subject, being responsible for the abuse of that liberty. Likewise, Justice Story said uh, in 1833, when describing the enactment of the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment in particular, that every man shall have a right to speak, write, and print his opinions upon any subject whatsoever without any prior restraint, so always that he does not injure any other person or obtain attempt to subvert the government. So these references to the right of every free man, every man, every citizen, and every individual appear to refer to every person's right to use printing technology. Now they are much less consistent with the notion that the right gave special protection to the few men who were members of a particular industry. Some early state constitutions mentioned both every citizen phrase and then separately also had phrases about liberty of speech or of the press. But as the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 shows, these formulations did not describe separate rights. So the text of the Pennsylvania uh, Constitution read, quote, that the people have a right to freedom of speech and of writing and publishing their sentiments. Therefore, the freedom of the press ought not to be restrained, end quote. Now, the Founding Fathers made this clear uh, even before the Revolutionary War had started. Uh, specifically, uh, in the Continental Congress, uh, which was the legislative body of the Founding Fathers, uh, wrote in 1774, in their appeal to the inhabitants of Quebec, the last right we shall mention regards the freedom of the press whereby oppressive officers are shamed or intimidated into more honorable and just modes of conducting affairs. Which suggests that the freedom of the press was a restatement of the right of the people to publish and we see this in early cases, such as the decision uh, in Runkle v. Meyer uh, from 1803, 
which likewise treats the liberty of the press as equivalent to the provision that every citizen may freely speak, write, and print on any subject. And we have, of course, St. George Tucker, uh, Chancellor Kent, who also James Kent, known as, uh, and Justice Joseph Story, who all treated the First Amendment phrase freedom of speech and of the press as interchangeable with the state constitutional provisions that every citizen may freely speak, write, and publish his sentiments. The view that freedom of the press covers every citizen, even people who aren't members of the publishing industry, also makes sense given how many important authors at the time were not members of that industry. And while those newspapers doubtless contributed facts and opinions to public debate, some of the most important uh, such contributions in newspapers came from people who were not publishers, printers, editors, or their employees. Consider uh, Madison, Hamilton, and Jay's Federalist Essays. These are a classic example. And uh, not a few of the country editors depended for what literary work their vocation demanded upon the assistance of friends who like being contributors to the press without fee. And it seems unlikely that the framers would have secured a special right limited to this small industry, an industry that included only part of the major contributors to the public debate. This is especially so given that some of the most powerful and wealthy contributors, such as the politicians and planters who wrote so much of the important published material, were not part of that industry in any way. Now, the grammatical structure of the First Amendment likewise suggests that the freedom that the freedom was the freedom of every free man or of every citizen to use the press as technology and not a freedom belonging to press as industry. Now, as uh, Justice Scalia pointed out in the Citizens United ruling, the shared words freedom of in the phrase the freedom of speech or of the press are most reasonably understood as playing the same role for both speech and press. So the freedom of speech is the freedom to engage in an activity, much like the freedom of movement or the freedom of religion. In particular, it is the freedom to use the faculty of speech that suggests the freedom of the press is likewise freedom to engage in an activity by using the faculty of the printing press. This is supported by sources that discuss the freedom in the use of the press. So the freedom of the press, we can safely surmise, was freedom in the use of the press. And subsequently, any government that wants us to believe that they respect the freedom of the press can do no less than respect the freedom of Julian Assange. All right, well, that is going to do it for me here today on Categorical Imperatives. I want to thank you all so very much uh, for joining me here. Uh, if you like the video, hit the thumbs up button. If you didn't like it, hit the thumbs down button. Uh, please feel free to leave me a comment about the video. I, I do really enjoy hearing from you people and getting your thoughts on these episodes. So I really love seeing comments. Uh, 
And, of course, again, to reiterate, if you want to support the show, there's a number of ways you can do that. There's links to all of that down in the description, uh, especially at Patreon, where there's all kinds of extra goodies. But, uh, anyways, I will be back very soon with another episode. Uh, So, uh, until then, this has been me, uh, Lockheed Liberal for Categorical Imperatives, talking about Julian Assange and the freedom of the press. And, of course, as always, Delenda Escarthago.